the core thing I think in any organization is trying to disentangle a skill at management from a skill in a particular area of expertise. Welcome to a brand new episode of Starts at the Top, our podcast about digital leadership and change. I'm Paul Thomas. And I'm Zoe Ammer. We are off to a very exciting start to this season of the podcast. Last time we spoke to one of our heroes, Bruce Daisley, and today we're sharing our conversation with a political journalist and author, Ian Dunt. More about Ian in a moment and a bit more about his best-selling book too, which he talks about on this episode. But first of all, I just wanted to give everyone a really quick update about AI regulation, uh, which I know is not perhaps the snappiest thing, but I think is going to be relevant to a lot of our listeners. Um, So this is just a really quick fire update of uh, where AI regulation is at. The reason why we wanted to briefly include this is because it's obviously coming up on the news agenda. There's lots of stories about emerging tech, what's happening in the US, what's happening in the UK. Now, I wrote a piece for Third Sector about how AI is going to change the charity sector over the next few years. And one of the things that I discovered in the course of that, that I think is going to be really relevant to our listeners, is that the government's white paper on AI regulation, which got published a few weeks ago, sets out the approach to regulation, which is essentially going to be delegated to existing regulators. But this is important because um, what it means in particular for the charity sector, I know we've got lots of charity sector people listening, is that if the approach from the white paper is followed, there is going to be a lot of regulation guidance, tools and resources coming through from the various regulators that operate in the sector and, of course, across other sectors as well, that is going to affect charities. So in the context of the charity sector, and the timeline for this is around 12 months from now, we may be getting AI guidance from the Charity Commission, potentially, uh, if this approach is followed. Uh, I have asked the Commission about this, and they said they are taking AI seriously. They've not said whether they're going to be issuing guidance or not. Um, But this is the approach in the white paper, and there could be guidance coming down the track from the ICO potentially as an organisation that regulates part of the sector as well for organisations it's relevant to um, and perhaps even other regulators like the fundraising regulator who knows there's a lot still to be decided but I wanted just to put that on everyone's radar because it's something that we're not really talking about in the sector at the moment what the shape of that regulation is going to look like and I thought it might be useful for people to know. So there's two things on this, and I'll just keep it really brief because I know we need to introduce Ian very shortly, who's very much the main event of this episode. Um, But the first thing is this is principle-based regulation. So if you look at the AI white paper, the current approach is that this is going to be focused on certain principles, which will be consistent across the guidance from all the regulators. So, for example, there's something in there about fairness and safety and the principles themselves. I do think they are quite broad. I would feel more comfortable if they're related to 
actual outcomes, which I appreciate would need to be drafted quite broadly because all the sectors are so different. So that's one thing to bear in mind. The second thing to bear in mind, which I, is, is a bit of a concern in many ways from my perspective, is that what we've got here in the current government approach to regulation is that there's going to be a massive dependency on the digital skills and capacity of individual regulators. And all regulators are different, right? That's the nature of what they do. So for example, Ofcom, you know, is going to be, I'd have thought, quite well resourced around digital because of their remit in the online safety bill. Whereas an organisation like the Commission, which is not huge, obviously doing some good work, but not huge, um, may not necessarily have a lot of digital expertise and skill in-house potentially. So what that means is that I think it's going to be quite challenging to develop a consistent approach to AI regulation across all of these different regulators and sectors, because all these regulators are going to be coming at it from quite a different level of, of skills and with very different needs, according to the sector they operate in. So it's a very much a changing picture. And we'll have to see what the government decides to do on this. Well, stay tuned to Starts at the Top, where you can find out the very latest from Zoe Hammer on AI regulation in the charity sector and talking of artificial intelligence. We should really introduce uh, our next topic and our guest, uh, author of How Westminster Works and Why It Doesn't, Ian Dunn. So we've uh, Ian's been in and around our consciousness for a number of years, particularly due to his endlessly informative and amusing Twitter feed. You can find him on Twitter at Ian Dunt, whilst Twitter is still available. Um, and he's the author of uh, several books, as I said, the most recent of which is called How Westminster Works and Why It Doesn't, which I think is a is an informative read, Zoe. I think we got a lot out of that and the conversation. A Sunday Times bestseller, great book, highly recommended to leaders from all sectors, absolutely essential if you're looking to influence government in any way. And also if you work in policy and campaigning and you just want to understand a bit more about what is going on in Westminster right now under the surface and some of the challenges that there are, uh, Ian is incredibly thought provoking on that within the book and also within this interview. Um, it's a really entertaining uh entertaining interview with Ian he shines a light on our system of government and he sets out what needs to change so thank you so much to Ian for making the time to come on Starts at the Top. Ian Dunt. We are very excited to welcome Ian Dunt to the podcast today. Ian Dunt spent several years working in the heart of Westminster as editor of politics.co.uk. He is podcast host of Oh God, What Now? and Origin Story, and regularly appears as a political pundit on TV and radio, and is the author of two previous books, Brexit, What the Hell Happens Now? and How to Be a Liberal. We're here today to talk about his new book, Sunday Times bestseller, How Westminster Works and Why It Doesn't. Ian, welcome to Starts at the Top. We're so happy to have you here today. Thank you very much. Now that you've listed all the titles of my books, I suddenly thought I, it would be quite good if I one day write a book that isn't in the form of a question. Just hearing them all in that way made me think, oh, no, there's a real pattern developing here that I think I need to stamp on. Well, we look forward to hearing the title of your next <laughs> book then. And no pressure. I know you've only just published this one. <laughs> yeah, we're not waiting for it, um, but we'll <laughs> let you know when we are. Um, <laughs> 
Um, so yeah, we we both really enjoyed it. Um, we've had copies for a couple of weeks, and I actually listened to the audio version, and I've got a couple of questions to ask you about that later on. Mm-hmm. But um, so, what motivated you to to write it? What was the reasoning behind it? I just sort of think it's quite helpful, really, if any of us have any idea how politics operates in this country. Um, and we really don't, like on a really deep level, we don't. We, we have the sort of day-to-day, you know, this minister's attacking, you know, that opposition spokesman. This is how the party is doing. This is a new policy they're going to implement. But we don't really, as a rule, have any idea of the systems and the incentives under which we live. So, I mean, I think even if you were to say to someone who reads a newspaper every day, can you list all the stages of a bill? I think you'd probably struggle to get more than five to 10% of them who could do that. I mean, I would have struggled with that before I was writing this piece. Um, And you see, places like America are actually quite good at this. They have many, many problems in America, but at least they have this thing of like, from, from a very young stage in school, you're told, this is how we pass law. This is how democracy operates. Britain doesn't have that. And that secrecy is not, um, it's not an accident. It's actually quite purposeful. It's not a conspiracy, but it is always very helpful for people in power that there is a fundamental ignorance about the mechanisms of power itself, because it makes it much harder to articulate what's going wrong at a given moment. So it felt like a sort of useful thing to write, if only so that I could figure out how the hell Westminster works, let alone anybody else. And that's good to know, because um, I thought when I went into reading it, I thought, well, this is a, here's an expert sharing his expert view on on how it all works and I'm going to learn a load, a load of things but it came apparent as we went through the book that actually some of this was a revelation to you too so <laughs> you 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 sort of lift the book lid on, on a lid on a way of governing that needs to change um it's quite apparent from reading even the first chapter of the book and and the sort of the examples that you give throughout the book that it needs to change. Um, you've spoken to more than 100 people. And again, we need to talk about this, but apparently listening to the audiobook version, you had that interview at the end of the uh, of the, the book where you su- suggest that some of those interviews, in fact, most of those interviews were done w- in the pub with a drink in hand uh, to mm-hmm. loosen, loosen the thoughts. But um, yeah, you've spoken to over 100 people in doing it. So what shocked you the most? Oh, that's interesting. I think in the end, it is Afghanistan. I don't think I'd realized just how morally depraved the evacuation from Afghanistan was. Our complete failure to do even the most rudimentary levels of organization and expert assessment, or even just managerial um, organization, really. So, I mean, there's there's certain periods when when you talk to the sort of the whistleblowers over the evacuation, where, you know, we had said as a country, anyone who has helped our war aims in Afghanistan, anyone who's represented women's groups, female judges, uh, interpreters, any kind of military personnel, you know, you can apply and we will try and help you before the Taliban take over. Now, a lot of the time, those emails were going to a completely empty desk because the civil service and the ministers just had not put the people in charge to sit at those desks. When they had, and when I say when they had, I'm talking about two or three people for a lot of the time. These are people who had no experience of Afghanistan. So you're getting thousands and thousands of emails. You've got a very limited time span. You know, at this point, the Taliban have taken Kabul. The airport will close soon to try and assess what's the severity of the claim. And to do that in Afghanistan, you need to know about the various sort of ethnic uh, and religious groups and, and how they operate with each other, which ones are more at threat from Taliban rule. And yet the people that were there didn't even know 
how to refer to Afghans at that point. They had absolutely no specialist knowledge whatsoever. When at the very last moment, this, this team was firing off these emergency last gasp attempts to just at least save this family, at least save that family, those responses were met by Dominic Raab, the foreign secretary, saying, I can't look at this because you haven't formatted the table correctly, at which point further hours were wasted. These are the final minutes of the evacuation. Further hours were wasted trying to reformat a table so that he would look at it, during which time those families were not saved. And when you look at that as a sort of moral, sorry, I want to keep this slightly upbeat as a conversation, <laughs> but you did ask, you know, so like as a just as a sense of national moral collapse, it's really upsetting. And it and it keeps with it that that important point, which is that competence is not just an organizational principle or something about good governance. Competence is a moral issue when you are running a country. You know, when you fail, you fail on a moral basis. And that's what we saw in Afghanistan. So yeah, emotionally, that was the, that was the section I was most affected by. And I found your chapter on Afghanistan so incredibly moving, and particularly the stories of the, the families and the individuals where you said, well, we just don't know what happened to these people. Mm. And it felt like a moment when all of these failures of the system just kind of crystallised. Yeah, that's exactly right. Because, I mean, you're seeing a failure, certainly at a ministerial level. I mean, you know, at the time we kept on complaining that Dominic Raab was on holiday. I mean, actually, the problem really was that he came back from holiday. Because it's when Dominic Raab comes back and actually gets involved that the whole thing falls apart in an even worse state than it was before. We see the failure in the civil service, which it, which has for decades just had almost no interest and expertise at all. You know, the promotional structure in the civil service is to basically say, look, the, the more you move department and position, the quicker you'll get paid more and get uh, various higher levels of seniority. Now, the trouble is that that just penalizes anyone who's been sat doing one thing for 12 years, whether it's rail franchise, contract negotiation, or Afghanistan, is essentially considered someone who has failed. But someone who spends six months on universal credit, six months in a minister's private office, six months negotiating with the Europeans, that's a high flyer. And the thing is, that person knows nothing about anything. You know, you cannot know anything about an area with just six months and then move on. But these are the people that we reward and we punish those who have developed specialist skills. And then I think the other layer to then mention is journalism, like journalism's failure. Journalism is part of the political system. It is there supposed to scrutinize power, hold ministers to account. But you look at the way journalists acted during that period, and most of the time was spent fixating on Penn Farthing, a man who was talking about getting cats and dogs out of Afghanistan, when cats and dogs were under no threat from the Taliban. I mean, I say this as someone who likes cats and dogs. I have a dog. I do not want dogs prioritized in an evacuation from Afghanistan. And in that final flight that we see, and that is, should create just a sense of moral despair that lasts with us forever until we change the system. But that final flight we see is him on a plane with cats and dogs while we leave behind the people who had actually helped British aims in Afghanistan. Really, really shocking, incredibly shocking. And it really takes us to one of the big themes of the book as well, which is about, which also a theme of our podcast, how leaders make decisions. And we were particularly struck by your chapter in the book and the almost impossible sounding working lives of ministers, and in particular, the bot system. <laughs> so can you tell us a bit more about how ministers make decisions and also the bot system as well for anyone who isn't aware of it? Yeah, yeah. So, the, I mean, we, we, all, we all see the box, right? It's the, it's the red box, it's the red sort of suitcase that they carry with them when they leave. And in that box is contained 
probably the most irrational system for decision making in all of Brit in all of Britain. Really, I mean, no other organization of any size would ever operate in this way. And to understand it, you need to start with the fact of what a minister's day entails. And it is just remorselessly full of work. Partly that's because civil servants pass up out of a risk-averse culture almost any decision they can. I mean, they know that they can get in trouble on a political decision. So the, the tendency is, no matter how innocuous it is, just pass the decision up to the minister. So they're signing off, signing off, signing off. It's possible for ministers to have, I'm not making this up, sort of up to 20 meetings a day. Just meeting, 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 meeting. None of it really accomplishing very much. They're doing a daily political firestorm of whatever their opposite number has said, whatever's going on in the media, whatever the prime minister might be thinking about a reshuffle, what their junior ministers are trying to take their job, all of that sort of stuff. They're being pushed into positions by the civil service, which essentially tries to box them in by presenting a variety of quite mad policy options and then one that makes sense because it's what the civil service wants the minister to do they're having to prepare for their performances in parliament their ministerial question time where they'll face sustained questioning so there's lots going on in their day and then they finish the day and their civil servants give them the red box and the red box contains all the decisions that they need to make now most of these decisions many of them at least would be far better made in a meeting would be far better made with a visual presentation to talk it through. You're talking about alternate funding models for a public service reform, right? It's not particularly conducive to something that is just put on a piece of paper and put inside of a box. But anyway, they have to go in there anyway. They're going to take that box. They'll be leaving at what, let's say 7 p.m., 8 p.m. They're going to go home. They're going to have dinner. They're going to have some wine. They'll be absolutely knackered and very, very stressed. And then at about 10 p.m., they're going to start making the most important decisions that the country operates on. Now, that just on a, a basic level of understanding how humans operate and the basis upon which they, they might make sensible decisions is a very, very foolish system indeed. But it is the one that we use in this country. It's such a bizarre system, isn't it? Because obviously on this podcast, we talk to leaders from all different mm -hmm. sectors and certainly in the business world and the charity world where I work, leaders now give a lot of thought to as far as they can, how they manage their day. And if I'm really productive in the morning, I will make all my key decisions then and I'll try not to make too many decisions over the course of the day because I'll just get overloaded. Oh, and I was really struck in the book by that chapter where David Lammy is talking about, well, ministers sometimes have to make 50 decisions a day <laughs> just seems so bizarre that the whole system has has evolved this way and has anyone tried to to change the box system no not really you know the civil service i mean the civil service has in certain ways has been sort of made fairly impotent particularly in its willingness to challenge a minister and i think you saw that over i, I don't know why i have to keep on mentioning his name and i'm rather horrified by it but the dominic raab bullying allegations and all of that you saw how how difficult it can be for them to challenge a minister. But in terms of the institution, in terms of the mechanisms that it operates on, it's very hard to challenge. And you get generation after generation of ministers come in and they're like, right, that's it, I'm gonna change the system, we're gonna do this. And as one civil servant sort of says in the book, he says, they all fail. Like the machine is just too big and the machine will, will railroad you. And that is the way that they're used to making the decisions. I have to say, I mean, it's funny, you know, because I, so I spoke to lots of friends in sort of quite senior positions in the private sector when I was writing the book trying to see which bits overlapped. Um, and the box system, I mean, almost to a person, they're just like, well, that's just insane. And why would anyone make decisions that way? The bit that they did recognize was the risk aversion um, and decisions being passed up to a kind of cho choke point at management. 
which I was sort of told by, and it probably doesn't count for every private sector organization, but certainly for many of the larger corporations, the people that I spoke to, they were like, no, I totally recognize that. And that, that is just a, a, an institutional problem that you often have. The box work system is a, is a unique form of pathological ineptitude that we've reserved entirely for the political system. And it must be so deeply frustrating to work in that kind of system. And that's, again, something that really stuck out for me from some of the interviews that you did for the book as well. And that got me thinking about culture and well-being and also what doing this kind of work must do to any talented, highly energetic leaders energy level so there was that really interesting interview in the book with Nick Clegg saying that quite often particularly as a minister you're maybe getting three to five hours sleep a night Mm. what do you think is the human cost of working in this kind of system because there are bright talented people who go into it right you've interviewed a lot of them for your book what does it do to people and what do you do if you get burned out I mean, we should we should mention at this point that the vast majority of ministers are not bright and they're not talented. And, and that is absolutely a problem that we have. It's genuinely we're, we're taking a talent pool on the, ba- you know, that they became MPs on the basis of their partisan commitment, essentially their campaigning skills. Uh, and then from that talent pool, we then select the ones who happen to be most loyal to whoever is in charge at the time. And that's not the best way to get the best people. Uh, and we therefore don't have the best people. But we do, however, get some, as you say, like we get some talented, sort of intelligent people who, even if they're not experts, can become experts fairly quickly over late, say, 18 months in a cabinet position. And as, as those Nick Clegg quotes say, they are basically broken by, by the system, by the demands that it places on you. I mean, here's the, he's very interesting on this, and people don't talk about it very much, but it, it was in the conversation with him where I was like, look, what's really the thing I should be thinking of here? The main thing was like, you just need to recognize that the political class are chronically and universally knackered. Like they are absolutely physically and emotionally and intellectually broken. And that, by the way, goes for MPs as well. You know, MPs have two jobs, right? The constituency job, constituency work, and then supposedly scrutinizing legislation in the Commons. Now, if you were to do either one of those jobs properly, you would not have time for the second job. So even on that basis, they're, they're absolutely knackered. They're also, and we don't talk about this enough, away from their family for four days out of the week, unless they happen to live in a London constituency. And you know, the, the toll that that takes on a lot of them is, you know, imagine you've got young kids, right? I mean, that's this is not something you want to do, just be away from home four days of the week. And in fact, we also don't talk about this, and MPs don't like talking about it, but the pressure it puts on their romantic relationships, on their par- on, on their relationship with their partner is very, very severe as well. And it's quite hard to maintain those relationships. Then with the minister, you have all of that, plus the box work and the ferocity of online culture and, you know, hostile TV interviews and all the various machinations at the top of government. So they're very, very tired. And when I spoke to sort of um, sort of professional psychologists, I mean, they were quite concerned, you know, for them, it's about the individual. For me, it's about what are the political implications? Because then they're like someone dealing with that kind of load of stress is less able to handle complex cognitive loads. They're less able to do basic decision making, to evaluate options, but, you know, because they're knackered. It's like asking, you know, when we get off like a long haul transatlantic flight at seven o'clock in the morning at Gatwick and go now make very important decisions about your life I would say well no you know what I'd rather wait until tomorrow morning before I do that and that's essentially the position that these guys are in all the time 
some of these decisions will be life or death, won't they? As you say, some of them will be a bit more mundane, but some of them will be absolutely critical. If you're a health minister, you might be making decisions that affect patient safety. And it's really interesting because what you're saying there about how burnout and massive overload can lead to decline in terms of energy and, and the quality of work that anyone would be doing, it reminds me a bit of a previous guest that we had a few months ago, a guy called Mike Rucker, who's a Silicon Valley psychologist. He hmm. was saying that he's done studies on doctors where if they're incredibly overloaded and they just don't have any space in their day, they don't have time for breaks, then their empathy starts to decline because they're exhausted. And that means hmm. there are worse outcomes for patients. And I wonder whether there are perhaps some parallels with this as well. I mean, no one, even the most competent, the most high energetic person can perform at their best, I would have thought, in this kind of environment. Yeah, I think that's right. I, I also think that the the last few years of more humane and civilised assessments as to what makes like a respectful and dignified uh, working environment and thinking about people's mental health have been almost completely ignored in Westminster. So you just, you just, I mean, take the basic fact of a politician's life, and there's nothing we can ever do about this. It's the way that it has to be, which is that at a certain point, you're going to not know whether you have a job in a year's time. So right now, for MPs, they know an election is coming probably within, you know, in about a year, year and a half. And they have no idea whether they're going to have a job after that. Many of them will be, you know, in their 40s, 50s, you know, certainly before retirement age. And some of them will find jobs in think tanks or charities or whatever, but many of them won't. And that'll be the end of a dream they've had since childhood and, and also of their political career. Now, they are going to experience that in stress. Anyone would, right? If you just get turned around and say, well, you may or may not have a job in a year's time, you are going to stress out about that. But there are no structures put in place by the parties to help them out. In fact, there's a kind of cultural, it's kind of interesting psychologically that they're sort of treated almost like a dead body once they fall out of parliament. No one wants contact with them. It's as if they're sort of, cursed you know so you know your phone stops ringing you don't get emails anymore the parties don't really have anything to link up on the the the, the final you go into parliament one last time to basically you know it's like a police officer in a thriller you know putting down their gun and their badge you know handing in their parliamentary badge and all of this and then no one cares about you you know there's just been an election you're out there's a whole new load of mps about to come in you're basically just discarded and there's very very little attention by the political parties or indeed by parliament about what happens to people when they've been chucked out. It is a real, it's really telling how afraid the, the, the flicker you can see in the eyes and that emotional sense you get from MPs when they think of the prospect of no longer being an MP. They are truly horrified by it and they get almost no support at all. Gosh, that is so brutal. I didn't realise the extent to which it is that brutal. So there's no, like you would get in a big company, for example, there's no sit programme, no outboarding programme. It's just... <laughs> Hand in your past. See you later. Right. And, and I don't want to over, you know, be too nice to the private sector because there's plenty of private sector places that will treat you in exactly the same way. And it'll be just sure. as brutal, maybe more. Um, but certainly none of none of that sort of new culture of just care and compassion for people has really permeated in Westminster. And I'd say that goes further. I mean, that goes for their working life as well in that, you know, we, we know from the studies that we've seen that a really 
big minority of them will admit to having mental health problems. But it's very hard for them to get help because once you go to get help, you're essentially giving ammunition to people around you in parliament. It's a potential threat to your own political prospects. So it's very hard to get them to seek help for the things that they go through. I'm saying all of this um, and it makes me sound quite compassionate and considerate of MPs and I don't dislike MPs. But to be honest, my main concern isn't really them. It's what's the quality of the legislation? What's the quality of the policy making? What's the impact on the material well-being of people in this country by virtue of the decisions they make? And that is severely impaired by just having a deeply, a, a deeply uncompassionate and unthoughtful system for how we look after them. There's a trickle down effect, isn't there? Because yeah. there is this fundamental issue around all these things that need to change and to modernise. And that has an impact on the citizen, doesn't it? Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, you know, we, we have to live in the world that they create. And if you, you know, don't create the right environment for people to make decisions, and most importantly, to scrutinise the decisions that are made by government, then you're going to live in a world that's really quite dreadful. And that's what we see, right? I mean, you know, whether it's any waiting times or whether it's the performances of the courts or whether it's the way the police behave or whether it's the, the fact that we've had no policy in housing, you know, we live in that world of completely jumbled priorities, of really deeply flawed incentives and of a set of ideas that are reached for the wrong reason at the wrong time and are insufficiently scrutinized in order to be effective. So yeah, we, we all suffer by virtue of the culture that is created in that building. What is it like to be a journalist in that incredibly febrile, volatile environment with all of these challenges that you've outlined? Well, I hated it, um, but lots of other people take to it very, very well. So some, some people absolutely love the lobby. The lobby is, you know, this bizarre institution within Westminster where accredited journalists sit and work and we can go pretty much wherever we want. Now, I remember when I first got to the lobby, my friend and I <laughs> just, you know, they give you this pass and, you know, your different people's passes have different colours. If you're a lord, if you're a, you know, civil servant, if you're a journalist and they open different doors and we were, we were at a drinks reception. We've been, we've been drinking quite a lot actually. And we were just like, I wonder how long I can walk in a straight line with this pass, how many doors it opens. We were kind of astonished after 20 minutes. We we're like, and it opens this door. And now, I mean, we don't even know where we are right now. It's like, which door will come next? So you really do get a lot of freedom there. It has a very particular culture, um, which is very public school. Uh, and which is, which is predominantly very male. It was, very, it was much more drinky when I first got there, but as times have changed, it's become much more Evian water at lunch rather than two pints of ale. Um, unfortunately, uh, it, it's very good at, and I don't say this as necessarily a criticism, it's very good at covering sort of court intrigue. And court intrigue is a part of politics and will always be a part of politics. It, it just has to be. It's about individuals as well as parties and systems. But that is not all there is to politics. Uh, and it's extremely poor at evaluating policies as they're thought up, and most importantly, at evaluating policies once they've been passed. So, you know, if we were to think of like Gove's education reforms, right? I mean, that happened years ago, like over a decade ago, and there's a huge amount of controversy at the time, you know, what's going on with the syllabus, what's going on with free schools? I mean, when have you read anything from political journalists saying how that's gone? Like, we don't actually know how that's gone. We just don't look into it, because once it's done, once it's passed, once it's law, it essentially ceases to exist for the lobby. They just stop looking at it. So it's a very um, 
frenzied culture to be in. It's quite fun and quite dramatic. But I have to say, you don't have to be there very long before you have a moment in a darkened room thinking, are these all empty calories? Because they're starting to feel a lot like empty calories. And I think ultimately they are. I think you also mention in the book the... Um... They talk quite extensively about the changes in the press and the pressures on newspapers, dwindling subscription rates, the, the cost of actually printing a newspaper today just is, is outlandish. It doesn't cover price, doesn't even get close to it. So the pressure on journalists to come out with, with copy that, that people are going to be interested in reading, it's all about clickbait and headlines. So the quality must have hugely diminished as well what people are looking mm. for what journalists are, are looking for and looking to report yeah exactly I mean we had you know we, we we experienced the very severe industrial problem of the fact that people stopped buying our product <laughs> and it's quite hard to make things work when everyone says well, I'm not going to buy it anymore and I'm going to get it for free um that has slightly changed but the bit that really hasn't changed that much is the advertising like you know we could sell advertising classified and display uh, for really good money. And that was where the, I mean, it was kind of a garden of Eden. Huge profits were made, you know, in the sector uh, when it was on paper. But as soon as it was online, people didn't want to read those adverts. And worst of all, advertisers got a lot of information about whether people did read the adverts, which as it happens, they didn't. And they never cared about them. And probably all that money had been wasted. And that really meant that, you know, you start laying off staff. The staff that are left you know, it's no more the days of you can just write one story a day. You know, that means going to a press conference, talking to your contacts, mulling it over, actually trying to get some degree of understanding what's going on. You know, journalists, especially the journalists I work with, writing two, three, four, even five stories a day, just churning this stuff out. And what are you going to do, right? You, you don't have the time to sit there and go, okay, what's happened with the free schools policy? What are the ins and outs of this that I can inform my reader? What's much easier to do is say, Oh, look, Nadine Dorries just wrote something unbelievably stupid on Twitter. And so now, but also Gary Lineker says that she's an idiot and she's actually shouldn't have done this. And this person says, actually, Gary Lineker shouldn't have took that way. You know what? That story, I mean, it's basically completely meaningless. It costs zero pounds to write. Like any journalist can churn that story out in 20 to 30 minutes and people read it. They read it. They read it in a way that they frankly do not read stories about policy. So all of our incentives, whether it's financial, whether it's editorial, whether it's consumer, point towards this kind of really quite superficial form of journalism that doesn't do anything to sort of contribute to our intellectual debate about politics at all. So given all the challenges you outlined in, we know that we have lots of leaders listening to this podcast who are looking to influence policy changes, especially charity leaders. How do you go about influencing a system which has so many of these issues and challenges? So uh, I guess if I was advising someone like that, the first thing I would say is, first of all, I would put quite a lot of priority on the committees. So select committees are one of the few bits of Westminster that do work fairly well. I don't want to overdo it. You see plenty of committee meetings where you just think, oh, my God, no one has any idea what they're talking about here. But generally speaking, it's based on listening to experts. It's based on evidence. And those are MPs who are working on a cross-party way to try and find a consensus with, with some kind of empirical foundation to it. So it, as, as much as you can get a role speaking to those committees and including the staff, people that don't often think about this, the, common clerk, the commons clerks who work as staff on those committees, that is a good way to go. The same is true also, by the way, for the APPGs, the all-party groups. Now, 
this is a complex area because the all party groups, especially the country based all party groups, are kind of a cesspit of corruption. And there's some really mucky stuff going on with funding models and what's happening there. There's lots of MPs who come in and suddenly find that they have a lifelong abiding fascination with Peru, where they just happen to be funded to go on nice jollies with their wife and kids. So th there is a problem there, but there is also some good work that goes on at the APPGs and it's worth being involved with them. And then really, I suppose you have to try and throw your lot in with the civil service and hope that some of that can trickle down to the minister and doesn't meet this kind of thick membrane of objection that you get from their special advisors, from their political appointments. So um, it's hard, it's difficult, but those, are, those would be the angles that I would take in trying to influence in the first case. So it's hard, but it's still not impossible, in, even given all the challenges. It's not. I mean, you, I mean, you know, the realistic part of it is you always go for what you think you can do. You know, I mean, let's say you're, um, you know, let's say you're an animal rights charity or a veterinary charity or something. You know, you're going to you, you probably wouldn't care. And maybe many of the people who work for the charity would be very indifferent or hostile towards Brexit, as I would. It was a terrible idea and we shouldn't have done it. But nevertheless, if you're in that position, you think, well, hang on, there is an opening. There's a government talking about how do we do things differently to Europe? And one of the ways they might wish to demonstrate that is by showing, you know, what have you changed with your animal regulation? So you're always, it, it's not, you know, this perfect utopian world of they're going to listen to stuff on the basis of its objective truth or social usefulness. It's can you corral what you're trying to do into a, a narrative that the government wants anyway? So, it's, I mean, it's worth talking in that way then about how, the, how they agree with what the legislation is that they're passing, right? So just before, about a year before, a King's speech, when the government puts all of its legislation together, let's say about 20 bills, you know, departments start passing up their ideas for what bills they'd like to be in the legislative agenda um, to, the, to the PBL committee, which is in the cabinet office. Now, all of those bills go in and then they look at them and they decide, right, what are we going to go with? What will we get rid of? Which bits of, you know, the environment sort of departments can we put into actually sort of like a home office bill, maybe, if that's the way to do it? What are they looking for at that moment? They're looking for narratives. They're trying to say, look, this is the speech the prime minister made the other day. This is his five core agendas. For Boris Johnson, it would be Brexit and leveling up, right? You know, for Rishi Sunak, he's got his five points that he wants to make about how he's going to do a bunch of things that he's not going to do, like stopping the boats and blah, blah, blah. So you know what the narrative is. Your job then is to see what are the bits that we want to do that we can make a case for how that could form part of their narrative. And that would be the key. That would be the key message that you would have in talking to people in the political system in the year ahead of a King's speech. It starts to get to the point where, um, yeah, for be, being from a corporate background, it's, it's like um, it's like that period of time just before a business starts to set budgets it's everyone feverishly running around trying to get their project to the top of the list and doing right. that internal campaigning to make sure that that's you know their theirs is on top of the pile when it actually gets in front of the the board and the ceo it's very very similar and i was quite struck actually just sort of reading the book the amount of times i made a post-it note and stuck it in that this was exactly the same as accountancy and law firms where you know, it's generally partners with no expertise or qualifications in a particular area who take and assume lead roles in places like HR, for example, right. um, and IT and overseeing all these big projects. And they've got no qualification and it sidelines the people that actually do. So it's very, very similar. There's a it, it's funny because I, I 
I had a thing in my head all the time of I can't no, I, I, you know, I'm a man of the left. I'm not writing books in order to show how great the public sec the private sector is. And lots of the problems that I outline, you see, I think, in the private sector. And one of them is, as you're saying, you know, people moving into positions they know nothing about. Um, the, the core thing, I think, in any organization is trying to disentangle a skill at management from a skill in a particular area of expertise. And I think we get ourselves into a terrible model when the only way of promotion, the only way of paying more money, the only way of showing a higher social value to someone is to just get them to manage more and more people. Because what you eventually do, I mean, especially in civil services, you get basically a bunch of really quite intelligent eggheads and just go dump them into management where they're like, well, I'm not actually very good at this. This is not, but I have to do it because, you know, I have two kids and I live in London and I really need to be able to pay this mortgage. So all of that, the basis upon which we promote and pay people seems to me to be a perennial problem that doesn't just exist in politics. It's also there in many parts of the private sector as well. Yeah, absolutely. And then we, we've, we've built a podcast around this idea that, you know, it's called Starts at the Top. And I think the initial hypothesis we had was, well, leadership starts at the top, right? Yeah, other people can take and assume leadership roles within an organisation, but unless they're being shown the way from the top, then it's really, really hard to, to get decisions made and things off the ground. But over the course of the podcast, and certainly post-pandemic, we've really started to question whether that is actually true. And actually, now we're looking at leaders and thinking, well, what changes are you making to bring in thinking from elsewhere and, and, and outside of the organisation, within the organisation? So just thinking about you know, real change in Westminster, your book is how Westminster works and why it doesn't. And then at the end, you put forward these ideas. So... Does it need to start at the top? What needs to change in the current system to allow fundamental change in, in, in Westminster? Because it seems to me that you're painting this picture where there is, it's really only at that top level where that change can be made. But I'm just really interested in your thoughts around it. It's funny because politics and the private sector are, are sort of similar and different in that respect right i mean you'd often get this when you see politicians go into politics usually usually through the lords to become a minister or something that they'll be incredibly frustrated because they're sort of used to being able to say something and then there's something sort of typically happens right but in politics it's like well that's not how it works in politics at all you can come in at quite a senior level and saying something is just the beginning of a very very long and slow process in which lots of different institutions are butting against each other not the least of which is the executive the legislature and the civil service so it's quite distinct in that sense but in another way it's quite similar which is that the prime minister does have an overwhelming amount of executive power in our system you know that's not the case elsewhere right if you're in the u.s you know, they do not have the ability to pass legislation. Congress has the only ability to pass legislation. If you're in Germany, local states have power. We do not really have any meaningful form of local government. Not really. Not in terms of, certainly not in terms of policymaking. So they can do almost anything. I mean, you look, if we were to decide right now to remove the prime minister's power to appoint their cronies to the House of Lords, it could be done with a letter written by Rishi Sunak to the Lords Appointments Commission. No more than that. It wouldn't even need legislation. You could just write a letter and it would be done. It would happen. So it, a lot of it is very, very easy to do in terms of the practical mechanisms of how it would take place. The challenge is, is a very ancient moral challenge. And it's basically, how do you get the person who most benefits from a system to change the system, given that they're the person who benefits from it? 
And that is much harder. And the only real route to it is the rather old fashioned route of elections. It's about getting oppositions to pin themselves to the mast to make clear what they want to change before the election takes place. So in those crucial two years after an election, they actually implement the changes. So all of the most important constitutional reforms we see come after an election. The modern select committees in 1979, the reform of the House of Lords in 1997, as well as the independence of the Bank of England, the creation of the Office of Budget Responsibility and the, the semi-implementation of the right committee reforms in 2010. It's always after an election. That's the crunch point. And the key, and it really is key now because we're, we're in that period, is to get the opposition on paper supporting that stuff so they have to enact it when they then become a government. So we've got to hold our breath for about 18 months and then well, start I mean, starting it, you to know, see things this, happening. This is a, a relaxed podcast. If I was talking to you know political activists or party members, I would be saying, don't hold your breath, just go out and make it happen and hold them to the wall until we get something. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And yeah, so in the um, in the final lines of your book, it says uh, there's a really lovely quote that both Zoe and I have talked about, and I think we need to end this podcast on a more hopeful note. And you say, change will not come from the generosity of those who benefit from the existing state of affairs. It will come from the sustained challenge of those who do not. What makes you hopeful about the future of Westminster and politics? Well, I feel hopeful now when I... I see what people's demands are. You know, I mean, during the Brexit years and before, our politics was lost in this kind of cultural anxiety and sense of victimhood, arguably on both sides. But now people want something practical. They want a country that works. You know, they want schools that work. They want transport that works. Most importantly, they want a health service that they feel will actually protect them and not just leave them on the floor of their kitchen for eight hours after they've had a heart attack. Now, the way to get that is to think, what is the right way of passing policy? What is the right way of ensuring that when we try to implement a change, for instance, in something complex like the health service, we're in control of the, the minute goals that you have in the step-by-step -step process, the funding, the organization, the assessment of what we need in terms of labor force, that kind of complex technical, granular policy making and policy enforcement and strategy delivery process, that is actually at the heart of delivering on what people want in the country right now. And where that's the debate, where it's practical and achievable, then we start thinking about the mechanisms by which we do it. So it, it, although it does feel like things are falling apart in this country, unlike a few years ago, the debate is now in quite a conducive place to thinking, let's have a better system of governance than the one we have now, because by Christ, the one that we have now is not working very well. Thank you so much, Ian. What a Thank you so much, Ian. What a what a resounding note to end on, and thank you for shining a light on what's going on in this system and also defining what needs to change. It's a wonderful book. We thoroughly encourage people to go out there and get it. And we learned so much from reading it and we're sure our listeners will too. So thank you so much for coming on today. Oh, thank you guys. It was a real pleasure talking to you. Cheers. It was thank a joy. You very much. Thank you. Thank you so much to Ian for coming onto the podcast, being so frank with his views and being yeah, generally entertaining. I think you were right. It's such an entertaining conversation. 
It's a really interesting read, and particularly for people uh, who maybe like me are a bit nonplussed by politics, a bit disengaged from it. It was a real shot in the arm and a real reminder of how important it is and just how broken the system uh, actually is. So I'm now hanging off his every word. Um, if you are like me and sometimes uh, find it easier to um, engage with the audio version of the book, see if you notice, I think it's in chapter 11, where there is a very audible sigh where even Ian can't believe quite what he is, uh, the stories that he is recounting. It was quite funny because you don't get that in the book, right? You can read the words and you don't, you don't hear the sighing in the background, but that was a very audible sigh, chapter 11, uh, which is really entertaining. Brilliant. And thank you so much again to Ian for a fantastic interview. So next up is an episode on volunteering, appropriately enough, in Volunteers Week. So we look forward to sharing that with you in a couple of weeks' time. In the meantime, you can find us over on Twitter. We're at at starts at the top one. And you can also email us at starts at the top at gmail.com. And if you listen to us on Apple Podcasts, and I know we say this every week, but we really do appreciate it when you do, please rate and review us. It does really, really help with visibility of the podcast and getting into more people's ears. So please do rate and review. Uh, and we'll speak to you again in a couple of weeks during Volunteers Week. Thank you very much. Speak Bye. to you soon. Bye.